Is the Bible sexist? Does God in the Bible think men are more valuable than women? Does New Testament Christianity look down upon women as lesser than men? Are men more important than women in the Bible? I can tell you, matter-of-factly, no. To get started, I want to tell you three things about women in regards to the Bible. Number one, the Bible is the only ancient writing that says women and men are equal. Yeah, the only one. The Bible is revolutionary in suggesting, not suggesting, stating that men and women are equal. You might ask, well, equal how? Glad you asked, I'll tell you. They're equal in value before God. They're equal in value before God. Genesis 1, 27 and 28. Galatians 3, 28. 1 Corinthians 11, 1 through 15. They're equal in unity of marriage. Genesis 2, 24. They're equal in honor and respect in parenthood. Exodus 20, verse 12. Leviticus 19, 3. They're equal in accountability to the law. Deuteronomy 22, 22 and Leviticus 20, verse 10. They're equal heirs of grace. 1 Peter 3, 7. So men and women in the Bible, revolutionary, all the other, all the other ancient writings you can find and religious writings that you can find have the man as superior or more valuable or more important. But no, we see in the Bible they're equal in value before God. They're equal in unity of marriage. They're equal in honor and respect in parenthood. Equal in accountability of the law. Equal heirs of grace. And that right there should be enough to be like, wow, that's powerful. The Bible actually thinks men and women are equal. But I'll give you more. Secondly, I want to say that Jesus, in the New Testament, of course, went against the culture of his time and changed the beliefs about women forever. You see, Jesus, he spoke to women and asked for verbal responses from them. You see that in John 11, 25 and 26. What's so amazing about that? In the culture at that time, you wouldn't do that publicly. You wouldn't say, hey, what do you think about this as a man to a woman? No, but Jesus did this. Jesus spoke to women who were sexually immoral and offered them forgiveness. John 4 and John 8, 1 through 11. This is unprecedented. If a man knew a woman was caught in sexual sin. He would not talk to her. Jesus did and offered forgiveness. Jesus chose to reveal himself first to women after the resurrection. Matthew 28, John 20. When Jesus rose from the dead, he could have revealed his resurrection to anyone. He could have gone to a man. He could have gone to Peter. But no. He tells the women first. And Jesus trusted the women to tell the men that he was risen. Matthew 28, John 20, once again. So not only did he choose to first show them himself to them, 
He also trusted the women to tell the men. So he showed them trust and respect and he talked to them in public and, and, and asked them for responses. All of this is counterculture to Jesus' time. So that shows you how Jesus feels about women, which means you know how God feels about women. Third of all, I'd like to say that women are seen as active followers of Christ. Active followers of Christ. It wasn't just the men following after Christ. The women are seen active at prayer meetings. In Acts 12, 12 through 15, they're seen praised for being faithful disciples of Christ. In Acts 9, 36, Philippians 4, 3, Romans 16, 1 through 6, and 2 Timothy 1, 5. They are seen sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Acts 18.26, Acts 21.8-9, Philippians 4.3. They are praised for risking their lives for the sake of Paul's ministry. Romans 16.3-4. So we see them as active parts of the church, active members of the church. It's not just, oh, that's the guy's thing, or that's that. No, no, no. What we see from the Old Testament into the New Testament, that women and men, they're equal before God, and that Jesus went against culture, and they were active in the New Testament church. Like, this is just a really basic thing of understanding the Bible and biblical Christianity of how women are looked at and how they should be looked at within Christianity. Now, that doesn't mean that every Christian has treated women with respect or how they should. It doesn't mean every church has treated women with respect or like they should. What it means is biblical Christianity, godly Christianity, will see women this way. John MacArthur said this, Whenever the gospel has spread, the social, legal, and spiritual status of women has, as a rule, been elevated. When the gospel has been eclipsed, whether by repression, false religion, secularism, humanistic philosophy, or spiritual decay within the church, the status of women has declined accordingly. And Sue Boland said this, As Christianity spread throughout the world, its redemptive effects elevated women and set them free in many ways. The Christian ethic declared equal worth and value for both men and women. As a result of Jesus Christ and his teachings, women in much of the world today, especially in the West, enjoy more privileges and rights than at any other time in history. It takes only a cursory trip to an Arab nation or to a third world country to see how little freedom women have in countries where Christianity has had little or no presence. She says this, Christianity is the best thing that's ever happened to women. What? An incredibly strong statement, and I believe that's true. Now, I'm not going to try and push this off and be like, mm, yeah, uh, there's no passages that seem kind of sketchy in the Bible about women um, that looks where they're kind of held back or looked lower. There's some passages that seem passages that seem that way, but let's tackle a few of them because I believe that all of them are misconceptions or misunderstandings. In Exodus 21.7, it says, If a man sell his daughter to be a maidservant, she shall not go out as the men's servants do. And so people think when they read this verse sometimes without looking at all the context, and I've seen people make you know memes and writing out all these things of like, this is what the Bible says about women, and totally taking verses out of context. Some people mistake this for thinking that a man can sell his daughter, so a father can sell his daughter, to a man as a sex slave. 
It's not what it's talking about. Not even a little bit. Um, and I want to bring some clarity to this. In context, this is a passage about laws concerning indentured servants and not about selling your daughter as a sex slave. And if the raise sell your daughter makes you nervous, Numbers 30, 3 through 5 would seem to clarify this. It seems that a daughter cannot just become an indentured servant any more than a father can just sell her. It's more of a mutual agreement that this would be in the best interest of the daughter and the family. Okay, so it gets, gets kind of complicated, but understand there's indentured servants. The passage we're about to look at here in Exodus 21.7 and the verse that we take out of context here is actually extra rules to protect women who enter indentured servanthood. But before we get into that, let me tell you some laws about indentured servants. Um, they were full members of the community, Genesis 17.12. Um, they received same rest periods and holidays as everyone else. Exodus 23, 12, Deuteronomy 5, 14 through 15, and uh, 12, chapter 12, verse 12, uh, must be treated humanely. Exodus 21, verses 26 and 27. Um, it was a voluntary and temporary six-year agreement. Exodus 21, 2, Deuteronomy 15, 12. And you were to be released from the agreement if, they were mis if you were mistreated. Uh, Exodus 21. So these are just laws, general laws about indentured servants. So then you have these law, this law in Exodus 21.7. Well, what about our daughters? What happens if one of these three things happen? Okay, so that's the, con the context of this. And this has to do, these verses are not saying that she doesn't, when, when you sell your daughter, she doesn't get to go home after six years. She doesn't get to her freedom after six years. No. Contrarily, these are extra laws to protect her in, in case any of these things happen. Verse 8 of the same chapter, so Exodus 21, 8. If she pleases not her master who had betrothed her to himself, then shall he let her be redeemed to sell her unto a strange nation. He shall have no power, seeing he hath dealt deceitfully with her. So someone's, uh, a daughter has, has entered an, an indentured servanthood and the master decides, I want to marry this girl. So they get betrothed or engaged, except betrothals are, betrothals are much more serious than an engagement, as we would talk about today. A betrothal is a very specific agreement. Okay, They're not married yet. They're not living together yet. They're not intimate yet, but it's much more stronger than just, hey, we're engaged. Um, and that, there's a whole conversation about that. But they're betrothed. But then he wants to break off the betrothal. He decides he doesn't want to marry her, which is a really big deal in this culture. And so, of course, what would happen if, if he does that and she's still an indentured servant? Well, no. There's a lot to protect him from that. If he breaks off an engagement with her, he can't just sell her off to some other, uh, other foreign nation. That would be mistreatment. Can't do that. Uh, if he breaks it off, he cannot do that. She gets to go back home. The second thing, verse 9, if he uh, have betrothed her unto his son, he shall deal with her after the manner of daughters. So she gets engaged, betrothed, a stronger thing than engagement, um, to the son of the master. And he is supposed to, the, the, the master is now supposed to be a father-in-law. He's supposed to be a father to her now, as if it's one of his own kids. If during that betrothal period it becomes apparent 
that he's not going to treat her that way. He's still just going to treat her like an indentured servant. She gets to go home. In verse 10, if he take him another wife, her food, her raiment, and her duty of marriage shall he not diminish. So let's say the master betroths this indentured servant. They get married, and then he decides, you know what? I kind of want a different wife. No, no, he can't get out of it that easy. He has to take care of her. He cannot just dismiss her, put her away. No. And if he tries marrying another woman and diminishing his duty of marriage to her, she gets to go home. And if he do not these, th- these three, verse 11, under her, then shall she go out free without money. So in other words, she doesn't have to buy out the rest of her contract. She gets to go home. So these are three extra things that men don't have. These are three extra protections that women have in regards to indentured servanthood. I hope you're tracking with me and understanding uh, what I'm talking about here. Um, Let's go to another one. Deuteronomy 22, 28, and 29. If a man find a damsel that is a virgin, which is not betrothed, then lay hold on her and lie with her, and they be found... Then the man that lay with her shall give unto the damsel father, damsel's father fifty shekels of silver, and she shall be his wife. Because he hath humbled her, he may not put her away all his days. So people have also made memes of this and talked about this. So you're telling me if a guy rapes a woman, he can just give fifty shekels to her dad and it's all good? No. No, you're reading into this. You got to look in context. You got to look at what these words mean. See, this is found in a list of laws about sexual immorality. Um, and it gives examples of certain crimes committed and the punishment that would follow. Some think, like I just said, that this passage is talking about a, a virgin woman who is raped and that she's now forced to marry the rapist. No, it's not talking about rape. Um, they give an example earlier in this passage about rape and they use the words. Uh, force, and she cries out. They have a whole breakdown of the law of what it happens when someone um, uh, rapes someone and they cry out. Very bad. Very, very bad. The law comes down on them to its fullest. In this verse, the word lay hold on is a basic root verb in Hebrew that means to manipulate. And so this is not talking about rape. This is talking about this could, This couple could even be madly in love with each other. Okay, They could even be betrothed. But he convinces her to have sex with him. He is now accountable to the law. To marry her. To take care of her. He's accountable to provide for her the rest of his life. That's what this passage is about. Now you might ask, wait, what? So he has to marry her if they have sex? Yeah. Well, what if he's a jerk? The law talks about this back in Exodus 22, verses 16 and 7. If a man entice a maid that is not betrothed and lie with her, he shall surely endow her to be his wife. If her father utterly refused to give her unto him, he shall pay money according to the dowry of virgins. 
And so in this case, what happens is this. If the, if the father realizes this guy is a no good, filthy, terrible person, then he can say, nope, you don't have to marry him, but that guy still owes the family. Um, that being said, if, if he's an acceptable person to the family, then he has to marry her, take care of her for the rest of his life. Now let's go ahead and jump into the New Testament. As it says in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3, I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ. Oh, very good, good, good. And the head of the woman is the man. Uh-oh. And the head of Christ is God. See, we see verses like this, like in, about a man being the head of the woman. And all of a sudden, we get all kinds of crazy ideas of what that means. Let's break this down a little bit. Um, the Bible teaches that men and women have different roles within the church and within the home. Some people have twisted scripture to say that this degrades women. Well, they're just teaching that they have different roles. Um, the verse itself shows that being the head of something does not necessarily mean that the something or someone is inferior. The verse says that God the Father is the head of Christ, the Son, yet they are completely equal and unified. So even though the Father and the Son, they have different roles, they are equal. And in the home and in the church, men and women have different roles, but they are equal. Make no mistake of that. Um, also, like in the church, for instance, pastors have a different role than other people in the church, but pastors are not of more value than the rest of the church. They simply have different responsibility and higher accountability. Now, I, I want to explain why the Bible teaching the man is the leader of his home is a good thing. It's a good thing. And we know there's a lot of broken homes and there's a lot of hurting people and hurting kids, hurting wives because men aren't taking responsibility. Fathers aren't taking responsibility. When the Bible teaches that a man is the head in the home, it's calling him to be a leader. And how does scripture teach a man to lead? his wife. Well, in Ephesians chapter 5, it teaches this, that the husband should unconditionally love his wife and be willing to die for her as Christ died for the church. To unconditionally provide for his wife just as Christ is sufficient for us unconditionally protect his wife just as Christ intercedes for us and unconditionally serve his wife just as Christ humbled himself and became a servant. This is what the Bible teaches about men being the leaders of their homes and their wives. To lead in love. be a servant. He's to lead with love. He is to provide, protect, and serve. Now the men who point to passages like, see, submit, 
See, I'm the head. And they use it as a bondage to their wife. They clearly don't know their Bible very well. Because the Bible says to be a man worth following. Not a man that demands to be followed. We need some leaders. We need some accountability. To say that men don't need to be the head of the home is to give men a pass. Is to take away that accountability that they are supposed to have. It is a good thing. So, I know. We did a lot. Broke a lot down. Hope I was clear on those things. A lot to get through. Hopefully not have been too confusing. But So let me just sum it up. Let me give you five main points about women to walk away with in this episode. Number one, at creation, the woman and the man were created as equal image bearers of God who worked harmoniously together in the garden. Number two, the Bible is the only ancient document that teaches the equality of men and women. The Mosaic law had laws in place to protect women from abuse. And as a rule, everywhere Christianity has flourished, so has the freedom and rights of women. And when I say Christianity, I mean biblical Christianity. Number three, because of the curse of sin, men and women fight over who is more important. It's part of the fall. There's a a gender fight between men and women. But in reality, they have equal value. Number four, Jesus rebelled against culture and showed how a man is supposed to treat women in an era and place that had little to no respect for women and where they were considered less valuable than men. And number five, women and men are given different roles in the home and within the church, complementing and completing each other. Different roles does not mean some roles are more important than others any more then one puzzle piece is more important than the other. They're both necessary to create the picture that God has intended. And that is what the Bible and biblical Christianity teaches about women. Subscribe, like, share, but more importantly, read the Bible, live the Bible, check the source, internet, memes, not a good place to go.